Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Locked in Science. This is 30 Minutes of Science. While maybe, like us, you are locked in. My name is Claire and this week on the show uh, we have a special guest for you. Dr. Alice Gorman is going to be talking about, you know, some very big news from space, very big space news, which um, a lot of people would have heard about. Yeah, it's been huge news. Is this the news you're talking about where the um, International Astronomical Union have named a little tiny astronomical object in space for a very specific reason, and they're going to smash it out of the sky? <laughs> This isn't that news, but tell oh. me, tell tell me more about that. So, okay, so there's there's a uh, there's an asteroid called Didymos, which is quite a large asteroid, and around it orbits a little asteroid, um, which for a while they were calling Diddy Moon, <laughs> but they've given it its own name, which is Dimorphos, because what they're going to do is that NASA is going to. Uh, aim a spacecraft at it to collide with Dimorphos and see if it can shift its orbit around the asteroid that it orbits to see if they can theoretically do that. In, you know, And this is in the future they'll be able to do that to prevent objects hitting Earth. Is this like Bruce Willis in the, in the movie Armageddon? Yeah, seeing if they can, they can blow up an asteroid? Yeah, so they, in, in, in Armageddon they used a nuke to do it. In this case, they're just going to smash something into this little moon and change its path, change but its of, course. But of course, you need to actually name it first before you smash it. Well, that's right. You can't write it down in the mission plan unless it's got a name. <laughs> that is, that is, um, there's very exciting space news. It is, you know, Dimorphos is a lot more um, catchy than its original name, which was S slash 2003 bracket 65803 bracket <laughs> 1. So I think Dimorphos is a much cooler name. Yeah, that is a yeah. much cooler name. Um, no, thank you for telling us that space news, that very specific um, space news, stew. But in it isn't, in fact, that space news. It is that this week just published in Nature Astronomy, uh, scientists have discovered a compound phosphine on Venus, within the atmosphere of Venus. And the special thing about this compound phosphine is that um, we know about it because it is a compound that bacteria produce when they um, undergo anaerobic respiration or they, you know... They breathe, basically. They breathe in, in low oxygen environments. Absolutely. But so th- this is something that we know on Earth because bacteria do it. So what's it doing on Venus? Scientists are suggesting potentially there could be a life form there on Venus swirling around in the storms of Venus. So um, this is a very exciting discovery. 
all these, all this, all, all eyes on Mars, and meanwhile, all the actions on <laughs> Venus. Like, what's going on? So we're talking to Dr. Alice Gorman, who is, if you haven't heard of Alice, she's incredible. She's an author, an academic, and also has the coolest job going around. She's a space archaeologist, and um, she's going to be talking to us from Flinders University um, about this discovery. Stay with us, and on with the show. So huge news this week with the announcement that scientists have discovered the compound phosphine on Venus, pointing to a very real possibility that there could be life there. Now, to talk us through this discovery, we have author, academic and space archaeologist, Dr. Alice Gorman from Flinders University. Alice, welcome to Lost in Science. Good afternoon, Claire. Happy to be here. It's great to have you here. Tell us, what is phosphine? It's basically a gas which derives from phosphorus and it occurs in uh, three molecules, three molecules altogether. And on Earth, we find this gas in anaerobic conditions where there's no oxygen. And one source of this gas, I am led to believe, is penguin dung heaps. Wow. But basically, you know, if you if you have that uh, environment with no oxygen at all in it, you can get uh, little microbes that live, and they're obviously it's a, a they're not breathing oxygen at all. They use other gases and other minerals, and they release this phosphine gas. So if we get it on Earth, this is kind of where we're expecting it to be produced, and and it's also actually commercially produced as a, a pesticide. So we've got two places you can get it. So when this was found on Venus, the the big difference here was that it was in quantities that you wouldn't expect to survive in, you know, the very um, corrosive and dramatic upper atmosphere of Venus. So it wasn't that it was there at all. It was the quantities that it was found in. So why does this discovery of the sort of, I guess, quantities of phosphine suggest there is life on Venus? So you would expect to find some of this gas there. And in fact, we do find it on other planets in the solar system. So Jupiter produces phosphine, for example. But it's, it's so unexpected to find in Venus because normally it gets torn apart. So as it's created, it would get broken down and recirculated. So finding it in these quantities suggests that there might be another pathway for it to be made. And the scientists involved in this research ran a whole lot of simulations to try and figure out if they could get it at those temperatures and altitudes in those quantities, and they couldn't find an easy explanation. So they're not saying that this is definitely evidence of life. What they're saying is something living could have produced this. And at the moment, there's no other explanation to account for these quantities. And it's something like 20 parts per billion. So we're still talking something that's really sparse, but it was noticeable. What what they did, they used uh, absorption methods. So they, they sent radio waves out to Venus's atmosphere using telescopes on the ground. And these phosphine gas 
molecules uh, absorb uh, a certain part of that radio spectrum. So when the data comes back, there's a big hole in it. And when they see that hole, they know what makes it, that, that it was the phosphine. And it was so marked, it was so clear that they really knew they had something. And then, of course, you know, you can just imagine they're sitting in, in the lab or actually they're probably sitting in front of their computers at home, much like we are, and the numbers are coming in and, you know, someone would be thinking, hmm, interesting, is this what I think it is? And then some more numbers would come in and then they'd be like, hmm, this is really phosphine going on here. And then it would start to sink in and then they would be like, okay, could this be life? Is this life? But of course you, you can't just go shouting this from the rooftops every time you hear it. We've actually had this happen on Venus before. Right. So during the sixties and seventies and eighties, the USSR sent a series of surface landing missions to Venus, the Venera series. They, they went to the surface, so they weren't focusing on the clouds, although they did descend through the clouds and send data back. But uh, some years later, I think, you know, it was in the 1990s, uh, a, Soviet, a, a Russian scientist was looking through the images that had been sent back from these spacecraft and he thought he saw something move. And he, he went off a bit early, so to speak, so he released this to the press that he'd seen something move on the surface of Venus, so there was living things down there. And the scientific world didn't react kindly, let's say. <laughs> and they started to analyse these images again. And it turned out to be that the lens cap, which had fallen off the camera on this spacecraft when it landed, was still being, had been filmed by the camera, but it was like digital noise. So nothing had right. really moved. It was just the way the data came back. So he kind of looked a little bit, less than scientific, let's say. Right. So nobody, when they saw the phosphine emerge from the data, none of them were going to be leaping out to announce it to the world. So what they had to do was rule out all other possibilities that this was the source. And, and so that's what they did. They modelled the chemical pathways to see how else it could be created. They had a look at... Uh, you know, other gases in the atmosphere of Venus to see if, you know, there were, could be any mistakes or any overlap. So by the time they got to us saying, we think this is one explanation for what it could be, they're on much more solid territory. So this is a result that has to be taken seriously. And like all good science, it generates new hypotheses and new avenues of inquiry. So I think that's what we're going to be looking at in the months and years ahead. So I'm really interested, I guess they used telescopes that are currently on Earth. Is there a plan to then, you know, send another probe to, to Venus and do some more close investigation there? Well, this is my hope and dream that Australia will get involved in a Venus mission. We actually have quite a bit of expertise here in Australia. And a number of us have been talking about this for a while. So I would love to see Australia get involved. But in fact, people have been talking about going back to Venus for some time. And there's a few reasons for that, not just because we have to investigate these new results. So Venus is often called Earth's twin sister. We're kind of a similar size, a sort of similar distance from the sun. 
and it looks like Venus once had oceans as well. Mm. And the current theories are that something went badly wrong about 700 million years ago and Venus lost all of its oceans and turned into the heavily clouded world that we see now. So some planetary scientists say that looking at Venus's climate and geology hold clues for, you know, a possible alternative future for Earth. So it's of a, a huge amount of interest to study from that perspective. And also it is covered with thick clouds. This is, you know, one of the things that made it such a mysterious planet for so long. So there's a heap of data we get from those clouds, but it's quite difficult to get data from the surface. So people have been thinking about return missions to Venus for some time. Some of these ideas are now starting to be prioritised. And I think this will really, you know, cause a whole lot of people to, to madly start redesigning their missions so that they can collect data specific to answering this question. And are there any other sort of indicators for, you know, these sort of biochemical pathways like, like phosphine that, um, that we could also be looking at um, at Venus or in the, you know, the rest of the solar system? Well, you know, there's a lot of different theories about how life originates. And some theories focus on specific conditions on a planet or a moon uh, and what the pathways are from what already exists there. But we also know that stuff moves around the solar system all the time. So, you know, there's comets, asteroids, dust, a whole bunch of objects that are moving around. And other theories postulate that what they call prebiotic molecules and possibly even biotic molecules move around the solar system that way. So what we're really looking at here, obviously we want to know, is there life on Venus for mm. sure? But this will also reveal to us maybe some of the pathways, you know, did it originate on Venus? Was it a movement of material? If you think about it, you know, we're used to meteorites arriving on earth from Mars and the moon and possibly further afield, the asteroid belt. So we know this stuff happens, and we also know these prebiotic molecules, which are, are things that they're not all alive, but they're the same kind of complex molecules and chemicals that we do expect from life. So this is going to give us a much better context to kind of understand um, how these things move and how life comes to be. And the big question here, really, sure, we want to know about life on Venus, but what does it mean for how we understand the origins of life on Earth? So that's, that's really the ultimate question. You are listening to Locked in Science on the Community Radio Network and our guest today is Dr. Alice Gorman from Flinders University and we are talking about the discovery of phosphine on Venus. So this discovery announced this week is really going to, I guess, change our mindset in how we study other planets, our own solar system, but then also how we study our own beginnings. Yes, exactly. So if we end up finding these little microbial beings or getting more information about their chemistry and how they survive in the upper cloud decks, then we'll be able to compare that to different forms of microbial life on Earth. You know, how similar are they? How different are they? We know there's lots of anaerobic microorganisms on Earth and some of them live in quite challenging environments. They're called extremophiles. 
So, you know, they live um, in highly sulfuric, um, sulfurous, deep ocean uh, vents. They live in, in frozen environments. They live actually in rocks that are hundreds of metres below the Earth's surface. So we'll be able to start comparing them and, and see what are the differences between them. And I think it's really going to open up uh, you know, a, a whole new understanding of, you know, what it even means to be alive in the solar system. And and I think we're starting from a good basis here. So so it has not been proved that life definitely exists on Venus, but it's certainly much more probable than it ever was before. Like last week, you know, most of us weren't thinking about this. <laughs> So, <laughs> I mean, Venus, typically, when I think of Venus, I think of an extremely inhospitable place. I mean, yeah, thinking about life on Venus never crossed my mind, um, you know, certainly changed the way I think about it. <laughs> oh, well, it's pretty inhospitable to us. It's got um, atmospheric pressure like 90 times that of Earth, not a scrap of water to be seen anywhere, and rather a lot of sulfuric acid. So, not so great, very hot. So people will often say it's, it's hotter than the melting point of lead. So not so great for us, but I suppose we should ask for whom or for what is this a perfect environment? Like who loves to live in places like this? And, of course, this um, also raises the interesting issue of, well, it raises a few other issues. So first of all, there's a, a thing called planetary protection. And this is a set of guidelines that is administered by COSPA or the Committee on Space Research. And it's about how humans can go to other planetary environments and not contaminate any potential life there. And it goes both ways. So there's forward contamination, us contaminating other environments, and backwards contamination, spacecraft returning to Earth that might possibly bring with them pathogens or substances that are not great for human or animal or other kinds of life on earth how do you keep a sterile zone between you know us and the rest of the solar system yes that's exactly it that's exactly it so we have already said there's been roughly 20 missions to venus in the past a lot of them from the former ussr and russia a few american ones a couple of european ones so we've already sent a lot of material there and we'd have to check up to see, I mean, ideally you, you construct your spacecraft in a very sterile in, environment and you minimise as much as you can uh, terrestrial material that gets sent out. But we know on the moon, for example, there were some microbes that got onto one of the Apollo missions. So that's the other thing. We have to make sure that we're not actually mm. confusing. Um, I mean, I did think about this for a short while, whether some of these missions might have introduced microbes to the Venusian atmosphere that then just took off and survived. But I do think that's a bit unlikely. We're talking a pretty short time frame and they would have most likely been aerobic, not anaerobic, which is what produces the phosphine gas. So I think it's a bit unlikely, but we'll have to think twice. So if we send another mission to Venus, so even an orbiting mission will run out of fuel eventually and fall back in. So we're going to have to really ramp up all of the measures we take for sending future missions to Venus. So that's an interesting thing for a start, I think. And I actually had another 
question. People are very focused on whether humans might go and settle on Mars. Mars is a pretty harsh environment as well, like nothing to breathe, massive dust storms, no running water, you know, that that we found yet. So it it would be a very challenging place to survive. Mm. But people have often speculated that humans could go to Venus and create floating cloud cities in those temperate upper cloud decks. Floating cities sound incredible. Can you please talk me through how they would, <laughs> how we are going to get to Venice and live amongst our um, phosphine uh, neighbours? <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is the thing now. Maybe we won't. Maybe those floating cloud cities. So there'll be something like Zeppelins. Remember the mm. great big airships uh, before we had uh, air travel, aeroplane travel, before that was a common thing. So you had these massive balloon-like things um, that would, you know, move gracefully and majestically through the atmosphere. And if you if you want to get online and do a bit of Googling, you'll find mon- many wonderful artistic representations of what cloud cities on Venus would look like. I mean, you wouldn't want to crash or anything, but <laughs> and you'd, you'd have to, they'd still have to be pretty robust because there is a lot of sulfuric acid floating around up there. But now if, if we're going to have to share the atmosphere of Venus with uh, an indigenous life form, then maybe those floating cities are off the cards. Maybe there is no way to coexist. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But it raises a whole raft of ethical questions about, you know, what we can do in other planets and the, and the right. People focus on life a lot when they're talking about space ethics, quite rightly, And there's a lot of other complex issues about how we engage with environments that aren't on Earth. But this one is pretty clear cut. I don't think anyone would argue that we have the right to destroy the habitat of creatures on another planet or do something even inadvertently that has an adverse impact on them. I mean, the other side to this is not only will we learn stuff about how life comes to be, but it's possible there are commercial applications it's possible that we'll find something out about these little microbes that might have a medical application on earth or you know maybe we want cheap phosphine gas for some reason i don't know but we also have to be thinking uh, and and look this isn't going to happen soon like we we barely have the idea that they might exist but what are our ethical responsibilities to proposals for the commercial exploitation and space exploration at the moment is all about the commercial benefit. So this is the era we're living in now. So this is something we, we do have to think about. So these microorganisms that can, um, you know, that produce phosphine, what could they look like in the uh, Venusian atmosphere? <laughs> what could we imagine they are, like bacteria here on Earth? I guess when I think about what they look like, that's probably the kind of thing I'm thinking about, like some sort of circular blobby thing that has cell walls and has sort of little internal mitochondria or something like that. I mean, maybe they've got something like DNA, maybe they don't. But, you know, that's what springs to my mind. But microbes and microorganisms in fact are incredibly diverse and even single-celled organisms and we we have to remember I mean the thing we think of as a cell um, that might not be anywhere near what what they're like 
but you know, you, you look at um, views down a microscope of, of microorganisms and they're shaped like flowers and bells and um, submarines and bicycles and birds and they're, they're incredibly diverse. So who knows what we'll find? I mean, are they single cells? Are they multicellular? Is there even such a thing as a cell? Are they networks? Are they like stromatolites, which uh, exist in sort of microbial mats, interleaved and layered and building up over time? I mean, these are floating as, as well. And as one of the scientists involved in the study pointed out, we do actually have floating microbes on Earth as well, except they do usually get rained out again. So... I think that's, if we get a chance to actually see what they look like, then that is going to be amazing. Like, imagine that. Imagine, I'm imagining posters on the walls. We will reproduce this image. There will be T-shirts. There will be <laughs> coffee mugs decorated. With, There'll with be whole these. restaurants dedicated to these organisms, I'm sure. Yes, quite <laughs> Quite possibly we'll have new Venusian menus that will, and, and you know, we're, we're kind of joking about this now too, but if you think of the impact that Mars has had on popular culture and representations of different planets and how we look at, you know, landscapes on Earth, we have these things called analogue landscapes. So there are places on Earth like our Karula in South Australia, you know, that look like that you could be on the surface of Mars. I mean, maybe... This will also have lots of popular culture resonances, you know, music, art, fashion, who knows? And, and for me, that's also a really exciting outcome. It's a really exciting possibility to contemplate. Well, it's certainly been uh, an, an exciting trip in my imagination, especially during lockdown, um, and I'm sure a lot of people around Australia um, and the world are feeling the same thing. It's nice to be able to focus on something bigger than ourselves and focus on a potential microorganism that's, you know, not going to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very well said, Claire. <laughs> So, Dr. Alice Gorman, thank you so much for being with us today. You have ignited my imagination. Um, I'm going to have some crazy dreams tonight, but also amazing um, to hear you talk about this incredible discovery in the world of science, in the world of astrobiology, and also um, for us to get thinking about ethics, thinking about what this means for future worlds and for um, the human race as well. So thank you so much, Alice. My absolute pleasure. that's all we have time for on another episode of locked in science thank you so much to dr alice gorman for chatting to us all about this new incredible discovery locked in science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin nation with the kind support of the community broadcasting foundation and broadcast across australia on the community radio network 
If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsci@gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, we are Lost in Science 1, or find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Stu, Chris and Claire get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.